I'm too tired for that these days. I just kind of cradle my head and go, how does the president set the price of gas? I don't care if it's Trump, Obama, Biden. The, the president is not at your gas station with his finger on the button changing the price at the pump. Once more unto the breach, dear friends, else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to an exciting second hour of The Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jake McClure. Jeff is off enjoying himself on vacation, leaving me to have a snotty head and have a solo talk program. Hmm. Seems unfair to me, except I did the same thing to him last time around. So I guess fair comes and goes. Uh, this is the personal wealth coach. And I said last hour that we would be talking this hour about something that I've been hearing a lot about lately. People have asked me a lot of questions about this, and that is about inflation. I, I kind of want to take some time on the very basic nature of what inflation is, what's what are the alternatives to inflation? What causes inflation? Not that I will come anywhere near touching all the causes, but just, just a concept. What is this? Uh, it, it, inflation is anytime you find yourself paying more for a product that hasn't gotten any better than it was. And, and that's one way of looking at it from a very, very micro perspective. If you're buying a tire and uh, it, it has a higher price now than you can save money on air because it's pre-inflated. No, it doesn't work that way. I wish it did, but tire inflation is a double-edged sword. Nope, mixing my metaphors. Sorry. Um, so the concept here is anytime you wind up paying more for something, even though the thing isn't better, it's not better than it used to be. Why should I pay more than I used to for it? Well, the answer is that other prices went up that you didn't know about somewhere. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of scope out. We talk about the supply chain, and that's really not a good word for it. It's more like a weird web than a chain. There's really no way of looking at it. I mean, just, just t think about a machine screw, just a little screw, one from your computer. Um, it might have enamel on it to make it black. It might have been... Uh, chemically treated to make it black, or it could just still be silver. Well, it was probably polished to make it silver. So how many hands do you think it passed through to be in its final shape? And if you start thinking about that, well, it didn't start out as a screw, obviously, but it didn't even start out as the metal that the screw is made of. It, that's some kind of an alloy. That's a mixture of, of ores from probably completely different countries to make, you know, however many things go into that alloy, sometimes eight different metals, sometimes more can, can go into an alloy. And that could have come from eight different countries. And then it had to go to a foundry somewhere to make it into the metal. Then that metal had to go somewhere where it would be made into screws, either through a machining process or a molding process there's some machining that takes place. Was it done at the same place as 
the computer? Probably not. So you can see there's, there's a complicated web just for the screw. One screw in your computer has traveled thousands of miles before it even gets to the place where it's going to travel more thousands of miles to wind up wherever it is that you are when you buy it. Thinking of that web that goes out, all of the parts in your computer, parts, the final parts made in lots of countries, but each of the parts that make up the final part made in lots of countries, it's spread all over the place. So this concept of one piece of that puzzle, the Bolivian trade in zinc or the Canadian iron uh, labor shortage, or you just continue down the, the line, any connector between the place where the iron or the zinc or the uh, chromium or you just start naming the, the, the metals that go into one screw, any connection change from a mine to a transport hub to a foundry to any one of those spots can have a delay in it or all of them could. So first off, supply chain should be some kind of supply web. And you should think about that massive, like, radiating pat pattern, almost like broken glass, going out from every piece in every product that you own. When people talk about a supply chain snarl, we re really don't have a bad problem. When you think about all the problems that could arise in this web that we have. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't fix it. Please don't. Anybody that's listened to me for very long says that's absolutely the opposite of what I'm saying. We need to get it fixed. We need to get it better. And it needs to be less complicated. So this, this is one factor where inflation is it's just primed. All it takes is enough screws being late and enough products become more expensive because the demand for them is going up and the end product's not available. We don't have enough screws to hold it together yet. And I am keeping to the screw mentality because I have a few of them loose in my, in my school compartment. And I, I figure every time it rattles around, it's, an, it's a reminder for me to talk more about screws and shortages and that sort of thing. It's, it's right up there with marbles, except I've lost all my marbles. Supply chain issues. Sorry. Okay. So if you think about what is inflation and how, is it really inflation if the price went up because it was, there were fewer people in Canada mining the iron that made the screw that, you know, is that real inflation? Yeah. It's a price hike for the same product. Okay. So labor shortages can cause that. Um, transportation shortages can cause that. Uh, there's a, Lack of iron. We don't know where to find iron. Well, that could cause it. So if you think about from the supply side, and there's a group of economists that are all about the supply side, then you can flip over to the demand side. Well, we have more money now and we want more stuff. At the same time that the supply side is going through its issues, the demand side is being funded. So it's not only being funded, but there's a lot of innovation that's occurring. New products coming out, things that didn't exist before that we have to have. And this causes this creeping, rising demand of, I have been without and I want more at the same time that we have the other side. Okay, so inflation, we've got that pretty well kind of laid out as the subject. Supply issues, demand issues can cause inflation. What are the dangers 
of inflation as opposed to the other side of the coin, which we haven't even talked about yet, deflation. Because if you have one, you got to have the other. If you pump up the tire, you can deflate the tire too. And that's when money's worth more. You can buy more. You can buy the same item that hasn't gotten any worse for less money. And most people would look at that and say, well, that sounds fantastic. Give me more of that. Here's the problem with a systemic deflation. It's really bad for anyone that has debt. If you have a mortgage and we have consistent deflation over the life of your mortgage, which there's an oxymoron in those words by their life and mortgage. Mortgage means death gauge. So over the 30 years of your mortgage, if we have consistent deflation, that means over the years, the money's being, it's worth more and more. So you don't have to be paid as much because each dollar you get buys more things. So they start lowering your pay and you think, well, that's all right because the money buys more, except that you entered into a contract for your mortgage payment that doesn't care what your payment for work is, doesn't care what deflation has done to the power of the dollar, you have a contract, you're obligated to pay the full price. So deflation is a lot more dangerous for the middle class. It's about the same level of danger for the lower class as inflation. And then upper class deflation is actually fantastic for people that already have money, um, which tells you something there, that, that the Federal Reserve's job of keeping just a small amount of inflation is to prevent concentration of wealth. There's information in there that you can unpack for days on that subject. Okay, so we, we kind of established deflation is bad. Inflation is bad, but deflation is a lot worse. Hyperdeflation, there's just really nothing good that comes out of that. There's not a lot of good that comes from hyperinflation, but it's easier to recover from hyperinflation than it is from hyperdeflation. Uh, it's, the, the Great Depression where people were stuffing money in their couches and their mattresses and so on, um, the, the stories of that anyway. Uh, it's because they didn't, one, trust the bank, and two, uh, the money was worth more the longer you held on to it. So it caused less money to be spent, which caused prices to drop, which caused less money to be spent because it was worth more. So you follow that. There's a cycle that takes place. Anytime we're talking about money, and it doesn't matter if we're talking about calorie shells, salt, Bitcoin, or dollars, it's about confidence. The money is worth what we believe as a group it's worth. It is a true democracy, only it's only represented by those that hold the dollar or the whatever the currency is that you're talking about. So if a lot of people holding the dollar think it's worthless, then it will become worthless because they will accept prices that they wouldn't accept if they thought the dollar was valuable. You follow what I'm saying there? If suddenly everyone thinks the dollar is not worth anything, then the price in dollars would jump up drastically into this really, really high level and people will go, oh, the dollar's not worth anything, so you need a lot of them to buy it. That's pure confidence there. That's completely separated out from supply and demand. Just your belief in money, that it exists and that it's safe, causes the money to exist and be safe. Enough people believing the money is unsafe causes it to be 
unsafe. It's a confidence thing. And I know this is weird, but if you, what does money represent other than our belief? It's a piece of paper, and it's only belief that allows us to say this paper is the same value, or in most cases, not even paper. This blip of electronics in my bank account is worth that physical computer. Well, we think it's worth that. Well, that's the thing, is that when you say, what is this worth? And somebody says, I think it's worth, that's confidence. That's our belief in the value of something. And it's everywhere. It's the only way that we can keep this running. And I've told this story before about the old county fairs and how the, the scale that was used, the licensed scale at the county fair or at the Barons Fair, any of the licensed fairs in medieval Europe was called the fair scale because it was at the fair. And everybody measured their goods using the fair scale. Now, something very important to understand about the original fair scale is that it was weighted against you. It was weighted against both the person selling and the person buying because the Lord got a piece of it. So a fair scale that we use, you know, the whole word fair, the way we use it today comes from this concept, comes from an unfair concept. Just remember that next time someone says, is this a fair deal? It's confidence. The reason why they use the fair scale is because all parties had confidence in it. That's what made it fair. Not that it was equally weighted. It was the belief we all agree, and therefore this makes it fair. So inflation runs like that, and we tend to go without inflation for a long time as our confidence grows that, hey, we're going to have great sales at the end of the year, things will be worth less than what they are now, so we'll buy it then and we'll have a big Christmas. Versus flip back to the 1980s, early 1980s, and you were trying to buy your Christmas presents in March. Because surely the Cabbage Patch dolls were going to triple in value by the time we got... That was inflation. So this, this is not a foreign or, or too hard to understand concept. If you're feeling excited about going out and buying stuff, that's inflationary. If a lot of people are feeling excited about going out and buying stuff, that's even more inflationary, especially if there's fewer things to buy and more money to do it with. So now that we've talked about the concept of it, it's pretty clear that supply chain issues are the fundamental reason why we're seeing prices go up right now. It's very clear. It's hard to get the items. People are willing to pay more for those items because they're hard to get. And we've got enough money on hand. I can see in anybody else that's capable of looking very far into the management planning future, a time when there's going to be more things. So more manufacturing facilities opening up. We talk about the computer chip as the number one issue in the supply chain shortage. Well, the computer chip, last week I talked about at least $100 billion that I was able to come up with just off the cuff, putting together the, the prices on uh, TSMC and Samsung and Intel's new chip manufacturing facilities in the United States. And then I saw a, a, a story this week for TSMC that they themselves, just them, have $100 billion set aside for expansion into the United States for chip manufacturing. And I was saying $100 billion across the, the industry. The reality is that it's much more than that, that it, it's, it's probably closer to $200 billion or more just this year in chip manufacturing, most of it coming to the United States. 
So I can see a time in the future when we're not going to have a shortage of chips. We're actually going to have a glut of chips, which is fantastic for a lot of innovation, a lot of other things. If you make your decisions about inflation today, as if today is what we will expect into the future, you might be hurting yourself. You should take some precautions around inflation because it's important to have some things in your portfolio that are intended to rise with inflation. And there's lots of tools for that. Uh, Number one being a diversified market-based portfolio. Two, TIPS, uh, Treasury and Inflation-Protected Securities. Those are things that the government tax on inflation to the interest rate. So knowing that, that the good shortage is likely to calm down, knowing that the stimulus payments are likely already calming down, both at the Federal Reserve level and at the governmental level, that says that the too much money and too few good things are temporary. Now, the temporary, how long is that going to last? And will our confidence change during that period? So this is, that's that other piece. If we have a long enough period of inflation that we all change our minds and say, this is what we should expect forever, then we'll just believe it into existence. And that is a normal thing to have occur in the history of money. So even though right now I'm saying, looking ahead, looking at just these numbers, we can say we shouldn't expect to have sustained inflation. If we keep believing in sustained inflation, we'll get it. I don't see us moving that direction yet. I'm not seeing people saying, forget sales at Christmas, we're going to keep the prices the same or raise them, like what we saw in the 70s and 80s. You may see some prices go up, but so far, all the prices that I've seen go up come with squirming and lots of pain from the people that raised the price based on, oh, those expenses that keep rising that make it more expensive to get this product to the, to the buyer. Soon as we start seeing them raise prices just to raise prices, and it just being the accepted methodology, I'm going to get worried. And that comes to a key point. The John Deere labor strike. The union is calling for a massive upward move in their pay. Well, John Deere is saying this is a temporary inflationary issue. One of the major causes of inflation in the late 1970s and 19, in early 1980s was, was contract for labor that extended multiple years that were linked to union pay. Because when I said earlier that inflation means when you buy something that is ident- an identical product for more money, it hasn't gotten better, but you're buying it for more money. The same can be true in a labor contract. If you get a raise when you haven't shown better productivity, you're doing exactly the same work that you did last year and you get a raise. Now, we're not seeing that in the United States economy, just just to be clear on that. We're seeing the opposite. We're seeing productivity growth much faster than raises. This is fantastic. This is another factor that tells me that the work ethic and productivity are are, going to nix inflation right out of the building. Just know that that strike that's taking place at the John Deere plant is one of the things that we're still watching anyway. Because if, if there's enough of a feeling, and this is a big strike, it's a strike that many of the workers look at it as John Deere is really making more money, they're not raising our wages, and our cost of living is going up. 
The problem with it is that the contract goes way into the future. It doesn't just cover this short period of inflation. It may include no inflation in the future. And if you mark a set of raises every two years into the future for a given period of time, and all the pay is linked to that contract, then you're obligated to pay people more even if they haven't made more, even if they haven't done more. So John Deere is not signing the contract and the union is saying, but look around at the prices. Prices are up. So they have ammunition for this kind of strike and they really haven't had this kind of ammunition for a strike since we had inflation, big inflation last. It's really easy to look at management and saying, you guys are keeping all the profit when prices are coming up like this and you're not passing it on. One of the things that I think is important is that union and management folks need to actually get together and say what they're trying to accomplish long-term, or you might wind up with big bankruptcies again, like General Motors and um, Chrysler. Ford was nearly there. When, When union contracts have no qualifiers, no reason to do anything but just keep giving us more money, it's putting nails in the coffin. Uh, You can't compete against people that don't have that obligation. The only way you can compete is by having better quality. And there was a time that being in the union might might have meant better quality. Now it's kind of iffy, maybe, sort of, probably not even in some cases. So the reason behind unions, labor laws have, have stepped in in a lot of cases and said, hey, you can't, you can't hire kids and pay them nothing. Um, you, you're not allowed to put that guy over there with no shirt on and no helmet on underneath the people throwing hatchets, hammers, and broken glass. Um, stuff like that, you know, little things. OSHA exists to enforce a lot of those labor laws. And we have seen the union membership over the last 40 years drop drastically. And a big reason for that drop was because of labor laws. Now, I'm never going to go out there and say that uh, everyone left to their own interests is just, they're all going to be nice to each other. And because the profit motive is a big deal. And a lot of times people cheat each other and they try to get as much out of each other as they can. Um, It's not good business practice by any stretch, unless you're in a uh, transactional business that you don't have a repeat customer. So if you're selling real estate, or buying real estate, being as cutthroat as possible generally has no negatives to you. But if you're in a long-term relationship with your workers and with your customers, being cutthroat means that they go somewhere else. The union management cut each other's throat concept means that they're really not understanding the concept of what they're both trying to accomplish. They both want to be profitable They both want to do it in a way that's providing something to someone else, but they get their blinders on when they get into these negotiations as if there's only two parties involved. And management's supposed to be looking all the way around, but management's also saying, I want the new Ferrari. So, ah, yeah, this is politics again. This is, most of you know this, I'm sure you got it in elementary school at some time, that politics means people. 
Anytime you have people together voting, it's politics, and that's just described the entire stock market. Voting with money, the stock market is politics. And I know we've just kind of taken a step away from inflation for a second, but this goes to a very fundamental point. I, every time we have a presidential election in my entire career, I have gotten panic calls from both sides of the aisle about what if the other side wins. Never had a presidential election where that hasn't been a cause of great anxiety amongst both sides. If he gets reelected, if she gets elected, if whatever, fill in the blank. And they say this is going to be the end of society as we know it. The stock market is going to plummet. And they get more anxious the closer the elections are. So not in time, but like when it's, uh, they are neck and neck. Nobody knows who's going to win yet. Uh, you, you think maybe possibly somebody's going to win, but nobody really knows. There, it's not like the landslides of Bill Clinton or, or Ronald Reagan in the past that we're getting recently on the, on the popular vote. So this concept of angst and anxiety, fear, who's going to get elected and what is that going to mean for the stock market? Well, I just said the stock market is political, but it's a completely different kind of political. It's the same people that are voting in the voting booth. In fact, if you own stocks, you're a lot more likely to vote than if you don't. And that says that if we're that closely divided as a people around an election, we're also that closely divided in the stock market. And when we look at the net worth, of Republicans and Democrats, we find that it's pretty even. And when we look at voting Democrats and voting Republicans that own stock, it's pretty even. So we're looking at two sides that are both have a common cause and that neither side wants the stock market to crash. Although when you're not in power, at least you have the ability to point at the other side and say, this time it was their fault. It wasn't their fault but you have the ability to say it. Whoever's in office is going to get the blame or, or the gratitude or uh, the kudos for whatever's going on. I saw a headline about Joe Biden saying uh, something about his policies leading to the rise in, in gas prices at the pump. And I'm just kind of cradle my head in my hands. I used to smack my forehead. And I just, I'm too tired for that these days. I just kind of cradle my head and go, how does the president set the price of gas? I don't care if it's Trump, Obama, Biden. The, the president is not at your gas station with his finger on the button changing the price at the pump. He's not in the process of buying oil for someone. Does the president have the ability to increase the supply of oil and gas? Yes, but not very much. So tiny. And if he uses that power, it's all gone. There's nothing left beyond the day that they use the power. Uh, the strategic oil reserve uh, can be released. As a percentage of what we use as a people, it's a tiny amount. It has no bearing. When we're talking about, uh, okay, well, let's, let's let people go out and do deep sea drilling. They should put some leases out on the Florida deep sea drilling stuff. Let's get that going. That'd be great, except that the Trump administration released a bunch of those leases that didn't get purchased up. They didn't get leased. 
because that's the most expensive way to get oil and you can spend a lot less money in frack somewhere. <laughs> so this concept that we're talking about, that somehow the president has the ability to do something with his policies to change the price of gas or the stock market or whatever. Uh, Donald Trump was very proud of his stock market career up to the point when the pandemic hit. And then he was very upset because there were a lot of reasons that he gave saying that it's about the pandemic. If you look at the trajectory of the stock market across Obama and into Trump, there's no change in the trajectory because we didn't change how we invested. Then we had a pandemic. That was not the president's fault. Nobody, the president was not in the lab at Wuhan. I mean, I don't know why not, but uh, for some reason, we did not send our future president to Wuhan province and have him hang out um, there. So whose fault was the pandemic? Or we can talk about handling of the pandemic, but now you're trying to prove a negative. We don't know what would have happened in any other way. So we had a very short recession. We had bipartisan action in Congress. Gasp, I know, crazy. Congress passed not one, not two, not three, but lots of laws together in a very crazy polarized setting where in the middle of shutting down the government, we're still cooperating on a bunch of stuff. That, As much as I was disgusted by it during the time, looking back at it now, how did we get all that stuff done? So whose fault was it? Well, it was everybody's fault, but the president was in there. So the stimulus and all that stuff, President Trump can get the credit for that because he didn't veto it. And when we come up to this, Biden's going to, if we get the infrastructure bill passed, Biden will get the credit for that. When this has been the political goal of like eight different administrations at this point, and it's pretty much the same verbiage, but we're going to give it to Biden this time because he's in power. The stock market, the economy act on their own uh, time scale not on the time scale of presidential or congressional elections. And that's something that's hard. It's a day-by-day political environment in the stock market where there are disadvantages that you see immediately if you vote incorrectly. Uh, So long-term investment tends to say, I'm trying to build something. And that long-term building concept is the very best part of the DC economic cycle that we can find. It doesn't happen very often, but even this year in the middle of all of the back and forth and the bloviating about who did what and finger pointing and screaming and this squad or I'm a pro-American squad. No, I'm a pro-American squad. Come on, it's politics. Even in the middle of that, we've got an infrastructure bill that has the potential of being fantastic for our economy. And as much as there's a bunch of pork in the budget, there's a bunch of other stuff in there that generally looks fantastic. There's a bunch of stuff in it that I'm like, yeah, that's, I wouldn't call it fraud, but it seems wasteful. And as we get closer to that thing actually passing, I'll be able to talk more about what's in there because so much of it is on the cutting block even right now a lot of the greener portions of it are getting whacked um in a very um mafioso sort of way the person that brought them in has said hey let's go for a drive in the countryside to his chosen 
earmark. And then when he comes back, the earmark's missing. I, I don't know. Uh, that's what's been going on a lot. Uh, one other big piece about this kind of matchup between politics, inflation, I'm kind of putting a lot of stuff together, but this will kind of give you a concept of the scope that we're looking at. When we talk about the port of Los Angeles and, uh, and, and Long Beach and the, the big ports on the West Coast, we've got 49 ships hanging on anchor out there waiting to come in. It's taking about uh, four or five days a ship to, to empty them where it was a single day event before and before the pandemic we didn't have any waiting cargo uh, it, it was just very unusual to have to wait for a slip let me give you an idea on what that means when we're talking about 49 ships that doesn't sound like very much that's half a hundred ships and this is what you're talking about one of those ships takes about 8,000 trucks to unload and if you think about all the way all those things are stacked up one ship 8,000 trucks, 49 ships, 392,000 trucks. That's our backlog. We have a backlog of 392,000 trucks right now. And it's not the trucks because the trucks are on site. It's the drivers for the trucks. So we're running at about 60% of that needed number of almost 400,000. We're we're running well short of what we need. And when we talk about uh, running the ports 24 hours a day, that doesn't bring more trucks. And the truck drivers have to sleep and they're regulated on when they sleep where the cargo ships are not. Uh, For some reason, they have more than one driver on those Things I I don't know. It's kind of weird. Uh, how do they do? They turn the the blinker on when they're turning. Come on, yeah. So so this concept, we're short on truck drivers. We have aut- autonomous trucks on the horizon, but they're not here. It's another piece to this puzzle to say I can see the solution, and I see us moving toward that solution rather rapidly, but we still have a hump of multiple years between now and then. So I would expect to see inflation continue for two or three more years. Uh, I I could be surprised to see our production go up, ramp up faster than that and have the inflation cut off sooner. Uh, I think we could actually go out to five or six years in inflation. And if you don't recognize that that's a long time, I don't know what other word for it? I've got a daughter who's six years old and she has full-on conversations with me. Six years is a long time. It's, a, it's, it's her entire life t- lifespan for us to have inflation. So what are some tools to prepare for inflation? I mentioned a couple of those because there are things that have shown consistently to be great hedges against inflation. I'm going to give you some hints as to what has not been uh, great hedges against inflation over the past several decades. Silver, gold, commodity-based items haven't worked a flip against inflation over the past 20 years or so. And I would highly recommend that you do it yourself. Try it. Look back at the historical prices of 
gold and silver and so on and compare them against inflation. They're not related. It has, I mean, people, gold and silver are not related to inflation at all, except in a bit of a myth. So keep that in mind. People go, I want, I want gold and silver. That's a different thing. If you want gold and silver, there are other reasons why you could have gold or silver. You like gold and silver, just don't expect it to be an inflation hedge. Most people that buy gold and silver as an inflation hedge don't wind up selling the gold and silver you, for, to protect their buying power. They just bury the gold and silver and forget about it. Just keep that in mind as well. Um, most people that buy gold and silver don't actually sell the gold or the silver at any point. That's just collector behavior. Okay, so what does work? Well, Treasury Inflation Protected Securities, TIPS, this is issued by the United States Treasury Department, and there's lots of ways you can you can get it. Most brokerage facilities will let you do it. You can go directly to the Treasury for it. They have an original issue rate, and depending on the period, uh, the maturity period, they, that rate may change as they say, hey, inflation's up or down. They may add or subtract from your interest rate. If you're looking at just maintaining the buying power of a dollar without putting it at risk, this is a good way to do it. No risk involved. You're not going to knock the ball out of the park. You're going to get what you put in back out with, with inflation on it. So that's number one. Number two, if you're already looking at a longer term portfolio, being extremely well diversified in the stock market, in the real estate market, those both have shown fantastic hedging power against inflation. Um, this is something that I have said for years and years. If you look at the normal long-term appreciation of real estate, it tends to be inflation and taxes. And when we look at the stock market, when inflation goes up, you tend to have a higher return in the stock market because the companies involved there have to raise their prices to keep up with inflation. So their earnings go up with inflation too. Not across the board. There are lots of companies that fail in that. Being well diversified, if you look at what happened to the S&P 500 during the late 70s and early 80s, is we saw this in, in another period, you would say, that's an amazing growth rate, except when you pull inflation out, it's a, it's a standard growth rate that we've seen for years and years and years. So there's more risk in the market, obviously. Both the stock market and the, and the real estate market have seen a great deal of volatility at different times, big crashes, big bubbles. So this short-term money that you want to protect against inflation tips are the way to go. Uh, when you're talking about longer-term money, investing it appropriately with the rest of your assets toward what you're trying to accomplish in a well-diversified way, that's a great, that's far better than gold or silver. And man, I, I get this from people all the time about gold and silver. And my recommendation to them, rather than to have the argument, because it always turns into an argument, yes, it is, no, it isn't, yes, it is. Just go look up the numbers. I, I don't want to get into that again. Just go back and look up the long-term return of gold and apply inflation. And you'll find that we've got a negative return since 1982. Uh, there's, there's no good thing to say at the same time that goes with that. Besides, man, I like jewelry. It's pretty when it has gold in it. Uh, electronics is nice. There are ways to make money, make profits in gold and silver. 
It's in making it into something else that's more valuable than it was when you bought it. That's how you make a profit in anything. If you expect to make a profit by buying something and then somebody else is just going to pay you more for it at some point when you've done nothing to it, that's a collector behavior. Uh, What does that mean? It's not a bad thing, by the way. Um, It's the same for playing cards or for comic books. Bitcoins, to some extent, there's a lot of collectors of bitcoins that never are going to sell it. They simply say, I'm not going to sell it. Just, I mean, comic books and trading cards are the same way. People get as much pleasure looking at them and thinking about what would happen when they sell it as actually selling it. And that's not why they bought it. Most people buy longer-term stock portfolios because they had some longer-term use for the money. Uh, And whatever that is into the future, I want to use it for my retirement. Most people, when they're buying bitcoins or trading cards, comic books, they're not thinking, this is going to be my retirement. Those that do, when I ask them about this, and there are uh, quite a number of them that I talk to, it sounds almost like I'm I feel like I'm an alien looking in on each of these groups that I talk to, by the way, to figure out what it is that they're, what's their motivation. And when it comes to these comic books, most people do not ever have a a plan to sell them. They say, when I need it badly, I'll sell it. Well, that's when everybody will sell their comic books. So what we actually see, though, is that people don't sell their comic books, that they tend to, or their trading cards. They tend to leave them in their wills, leaving grandkids or sometimes great-grandkids with absolutely no idea what to do with those things, making really bad decisions on how they sell them. So, And that is the same, I'm sure, when it comes to other collector-type items. Uh, I'm waiting to see what happens in the crypto market. If it's around long enough, if we don't have a change in how we encrypt technology Uh, drastic enough to change the whole cryptocurrency concept. What's going to happen to all the people who have cryptocurrency now that don't know when they will sell it? Well, this is something that I, this may be the most educational thing I can say in this entire two hours. A professional will not buy something unless they know why they will sell it or what they will do with it if they're not going to sell it. So if you're a purchasing manager at a corporation, you don't say, yeah, let's, uh, let's buy three more buildings. Well, what are they for? I don't know. We, we need buildings for stuff. That's not how decisions get made. When a professional makes a purchase, they say, we have a need we're trying to fill. This is what we're going to fill it with. Or we must sell these items over here. In order to do it, we need to make this purchase. When a professional investor is involved, they know what would cause them to sell an item that they're buying before they buy it. And if you ask somebody that's buying Bitcoin why they would sell it, they generally have no idea because it'll go up. Thank you all for listening to my stuffy-headed solo performance. I realize I was functioning at about half. If you'd like to contact us off the air for for investment advice. We actually give that to people of high net worth, um, portfolio management, the voicemail locally at 254-947-1111 or 800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to the webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. You can um, sign up for our newsletter, 
Uh, find our podcasts. Contact us through the contact us form. I know who named that. And uh, email directly Jeff at tpwc.com or Jake at tpwc.com. Until next week, thank you very much for sitting through this performance. Um, and thanks for listening to the Personal Wealth Coach. <laughs>